Welcome back to Serpent Temple. This is a weekly review like no other. We are trying a new format. We are going to be looking at documentaries and films. So this time we're just going to be talking about a single documentary. It is called... I didn't write down what it's called. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's called Last Days Here, isn't it? Yes. No, I don't know. Wait, I'm... Fuck. None of us wrote it down. Write it down. It was so depressing. We didn't write down the name Fuck of the. Fuck's sake, cog on them. Sorry, very unprofessional of me. Um, yes, yeah, last days here. Last, last days, days here. Yeah. It's actually a very um, last days here is a documentary about Bobby Liebling, who is the singer of the cult seventies band Pentagram, who have reformed, broken up, formed, and reformed many, many times. Liebling is pretty much one of the few, if only, people that's kind of stayed. He's the the main guy. As in the views of some people. I will say before we continue, there is there is a disclaimer. So years after this documentary was filmed, Liebling beat up his own mother and went to prison. And I'm pretty sure his mum went to hospital. It was very bad. And she is an elderly woman. Liebling is pretty old too. Um, so that's fucking awful and unforgivable, unforgivable in my books. But I do think this is an important documentary in the history of the band, not because I revere the band, but because it's an interesting insight into the life of, we will see soon, a junkie and a musician and what can happen after decades of, of cult fame and stuff like that. Also, he is a known sex pest. So he went on tour with several bands, including King Woman. And um, they were multiple times harassed by Bobby Liebling. He has been accused of sexual misconduct. He's gone to prison for breaking um, a restraining order as well. So he is not by any means a necessarily good person. Um, but we're going to be reviewing this documentary because it's it's a fascinating insight into the mind of someone who is that way. See, my thing is, you know, like... There's the mantra, the fucking, the whole sex, drugs, rock and roll thing, which I think even he yeah. quotes at some point he in does. the documentary, right? That that's the mantra and kind of the, the the ethos he lives by. And, you know, you look at someone like Lemmy, who is a total fucking anomaly. And what I mean by that is that he seemed like a decent guy, right, for the most part, and managed to live a somewhat full life despite living such a, a hedonistic lifestyle. But I think what I liked about this documentary, it shows you the flip side to that is yeah. like, no, 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 this just all this does is turns a lot of people into junkies. Mm. And this is really the fucking the harsh reality of a lot of lifestyles that a lot of these revered rock stars end up having. This documentary is, in my view, a warning. Yeah. Like it is by no means a celebration of Bobby Liebling. I think some people could view it as such, especially given the ending. But with the the full context of the ending, because this was released in 2011, it took yeah. I think two three years to film. There were hundreds of hours of footage, um, and they they almost didn't even make the documentary because when they found Liebling, he was so addicted. In his own words, he was addicted to. He's been addicted to crack in 2011 for 22 years, yeah. and to heroin for 39 39. years. That's and wild. It's great. Like they, they've like they've hunted down this guy, and he's just sitting in his mother's sub basement in this like windowless room that's like so full of trash, like crack pipes and cigarette butts and and the thing that bothered me the most there's loads of vinyl records that are unsleeved that he's just got like strewn on the floor and he'll just like clear through and like all these vinyl they'll be like he'll open a drawer and it's just full of unsleeved vinyl yeah that's just crazy to me um but yeah he's like chilling in the sub basement like halfway through the inter- one of the interviews he's like did you see that crack crystal where did it go and he starts like scrabbling <laughs> under the sofa yeah yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that was just like fucking yeah. Yeah, it's really grim, and it's it's really um, it's really real. It's real. Yeah, it's a fucking tough watch. Like the bit because basically they're talking about his kind of coke induced psychosis at one point, right? Yeah, and some delusions he's got, and he's absolutely convinced he's got Insects. parasites. Like the Danny Elfman song. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Like that's probably what was going through Bobby's head when he was fucking. But there's a scene where he's absolutely convinced he's got these parasites in him and he shows his arm and it oh, literally so is grim. horrific. Like the state of his arm is unreal. Like just so much. There's no skin on his arm. So much necrosis and just rotten flesh. Like it's really, I think is a, I mean, I can't imagine anybody <laughs> who has never taken drugs to watch that film and then ever want to take drugs right? ever again. Like, it I'd will... be like, nah, I'm fucking good, bro. I'm fucking good. It's funny because, like, it's really close to the beginning. Um, and he's just like, yeah, man, my whole life has been sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Just look at me. And, like, he's so thin that he can't keep his tongue in his mouth. Yeah. And his face is, like, hollow. Like, he doesn't look like a person anymore. And nothing fits him. And he's just this poor, skinny man. Um, and you, you, he, you look down and his hands are so swollen and he's covered in bandages and open wounds and sores. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, I've got these insects. I've got these rare parasites living under my skin. Look, my lips are blue. My fingers are black. And his friend is like, yeah, we've taken him to hospital like 50 times. And they, every time they go, they're like, there's nothing wrong with you. They just let him go. And, and his friends are like, if you go to rehab, they could look at you. And he's like, no, I don't need to go to rehab. Yeah, and it's just so sad to see someone who's so sick, not able to to yet to get the help they need, basically. And I think you know, I think that denial can go such a long way when it comes to people that are addicted. You know, just from driving personal experiences. You know, it's just that step of just admitting that they are addicted to hard drugs is such a major one for them and that is it's a vicious cycle yeah they can't break out because it's like taking the drugs to numb the fact that they're down about being addicted to drugs right so it's like fucking it's a horrible position to be in and you know like me personally like i've always considered myself to have quite an addictive personality yeah likewise i think i've got some tendencies to be you know quite obsessive over certain things so i think because of that's one of the reasons why i've always made a concerted effort to steer clear of any sort of substances yeah. um, just because I'm like I, I kind of think I would be one of those people that would really struggle there's something we have in common and I've yeah. intentionally tried to get addicted to things that are good for me yeah like we both love lifting weights yeah we both yeah. love exercising and that's like a great thing to be addicted to most of the time yeah um, and it makes it makes a difference because we aren't Bobby Liebling you know yeah that's true <laughs> and like <laughs> but it's, and you know what? The thing is, he's such a conventionally handsome-looking guy. He could have been yeah. beautiful. Yeah. He like looks me. good when, it, when his hair's black and he's, yeah. he's got that, all these weird staring eyes. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I personally, Pentagram's a name I've been very familiar with but, and heard a few of their tracks. I didn't realize until I watched this documentary just how cult they were. Yeah. Like, I had no idea. Even the story about that, I love the bit about Kiss coming to watch him perform. That's so funny. In this basement. And then, like, the fucking, I think it was the drummer and one of the guitarists was just like, well, I'm a janitor, toilets. so you got to wait until I fucking clean the shit off a toilet first. And they came home in their scrubs and was just like, just fucking calling sick. Do you know what I mean? Right. You got Kiss coming to your house. They had to it's, hitchhike home because they couldn't yeah. drive. So they were even later. And then the landlord, halfway through the rehearsal, was like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. 
But I think, you know, I was reading the comments because it was uploaded on YouTube where I watched it. And um, that seems to be a bit of a recurring kind of motif in the films, like when they're on the cusp of success. Yeah, the self-sabotage. It's like a self-sabotage. And, you know, it's, it just makes you think, is it intentional or is it? it is. And I think it is, you know, because I'm just like, this is a group who, by all intents and purposes, should have been quite successful from a financial perspective. Don't get wrong, they've got the cult following. But as we know, that doesn't always guarantee uh, success in every other avenue they are um, so so talented like yeah. Liebling's voice is fantastic I discovered the band first um in like 2010 2009 then I watched the documentary and I was like fucking hell and then a few years later it was the final nail in the coffin for me was the the mother incident yeah but they and they they still play lineups. They still do tour or pentagram. I'm honestly shocked that Liebling's still around. That's that's bonkers to me. Yeah, yeah. Because considering all the other people we've lost, like I would have, I would have. It sounds weird to say, but I, I'm surprised Liebling has made yeah. it this far. But you know, it's just like sometimes people's DNA is like that. It's like that meme. You know, I'm built different. <laughs> it's like some people have just fucking their bodies are just hardwired to endure a hell of a lot of. Self-sabotage and substance abuse. Look at fucking Rolling Stones. Look at Lemmy. I mean, Lemmy fucking... They thought it was uh, genetic with Lemmy, didn't they? They find there's like a there's like a gene that some people have where they can they can tolerate more alcohol and drugs. Yeah, I mean, well, if if, if that that would make sense because that man's body took a pound and like a bottle of Jack every day, I would I would. So that sounded die. wrong. Didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was like, hi oh God, why is everyone not? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but. But no, nah, but oh, God, what a harrowing documentary. And, you know, like, I get why the narrative was kind of done in a way to make it seem like a triumphant mm. fucking, you know, like climax to the not. movie. But like... Because you know he's going to fuck it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, with, I mean, you could tell that man's issues were so deep rooted that, that, that there was very little chance for redemption. And yeah. even though in that it was, you know, I, I won't deny it was great to see in that fleeting moment him being on stage and feeling... It's so sad. Yeah. Because you uh, know it's going to be fleeting. You know it's yeah. not coming back. And, you know, and um, I was a bit uh, I was a bit concerned about the whole thing with the um, the, the partner, his Me eventual too. wife and kids. Oh, I mean, my God. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing with, like, obviously there's a, the, there's, a, there's a big age gap and stuff, which I think is something that's always... A red flag. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't seem... It did not seem like a healthy relationship at all. No. And, and obviously that was the result of his first imprisonment, right? Because she put a restraining order on him. Yeah. And he violated up. it by just keep... By calling her. She's like a fan. They talk a lot on the phone. And after like a very short amount of time, they move in together five weeks later. I mean, his parents, Bobby Liebling's parents, get them the apartment in Philly, which is where the, the girl Callie lives. He moves to Philly five weeks later, they break up. And there's yeah. like a, you can see like a snippet of him talking on the phone to her. And he's like, he, he's acting as if he's been hurt even though she, it's clear that he's done something to upset her. And he's like, why are you being like this? You know, and he's acting as if he's been wronged. And you can tell, like, she's getting angry and he's kind of, like, being a bit gaslighty or something. It's, like, kind of really uncomfortable to watch. Um, and then, yeah, obviously she hangs up on him. He calls her over and over again to yeah. the extent that she gets a restraining order. Obviously, he, he ignores the restraining order, ends up in prison. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just, I think that that's quite a common thing as well that whole where I think a lot of people in situations similar to his 
it's, it's that lack of accountability sometimes. No responsibility for their actions. Yeah, and, you can, and he said it himself at one point. Yeah, I'm Peter Pan syndrome. I never grew up. You could just so totally tell. Like this is this is like a 15 year old in a in a hell and ravaged 50 odd year old body. Like this man is not grown up. Like yeah. even the relationship with his parents and stuff. Oh, and it's crazy God. that his dad was like so high up. And yeah, had such like connections with like he was like a defense secretary yeah. guy. It was so he was like he served like was it six presidents starting yeah. from was it Nixon or yeah crazy. Because I thought he was chatting shit. Because he was just like oh financially, <laughs> it was like oh financially I've given him over a million. I was like what the fuck. I was like yeah right you've given them over a million sort of dollars to kind of fucking. But then yeah when I found out that he was so fucking well connected I'm just like shit. Imagine that, like Bobby Liebling. It's like the guy from Weed Eater, right? And his how his sister's like uh, um, in government. She's like what, a, a congresswoman. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, she's like really cool. Actually. I did know that um, um, Kronos from Venom. There was a fake story put around a few years ago. Do you remember hearing this? How about how he was related to uh, Kate Middleton? I remember that. That was so um, funny. And then, like, and for a while, a few, I, I think a few papers it. picked up on it. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, is this, is this actually true? I think I was on my way to work and I picked up the metro and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was really crazy. Yeah. yeah I thought news. that was just kind of wild. Just <laughs> Kronos with his huge, and I'm one to talk with his huge fucking forehead being at the Royal <laughs> Wedding, which would have been a sight to behold. I would have been, so, I wonder what he would have worn. That would have been oh, great. Oh, I don't know. But, um, Venom are an interesting one. I don't know much about them, to be fair. And literally anything from that era that's like that kind of music, I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to be disappointed, so I'm not going to bother listening to them because they're like awful people or something. I think they had a... They had a there was, there was this, they had a legendary spat with Slayer once, but the details had never been revealed. But there was something about one of them pissing on the other one's head or something like that. I can't remember, <laughs> but it was... I only know this because I watched the Nardwauer interview of Slayer, and oh, he, you know how well. he does his mad research. I love him, yeah. And like, and I could tell, like, it was, um, I could tell Jeff and Tom or I were just totally fucking freaked out that he'd managed to <laughs> dig up the story somewhere. <laughs> but, um, freaked out. <laughs> but I mean, which is, um, but that's actually quite a common response to Nardwauer's interviews, though, being freaked out. Just love the compilations of all the fucking rappers. Being like, what? How'd you know that? How do you know that? Uh, my favourite one is um, is actually not a music one. So he used to be a political commentator and interviewer, and he got kicked out of the the guy before Trudeau. He got kicked out of the interviewing the president of Canada because he yeah. asked a, a question he should not have asked. Yeah. And he was like, he was doing literally his Nardwuar thing. He was like, Mr. President, do 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 do, and they're like, don't ask me that. And he's like, but what do you think about like? And he's talk, he's doing like some incredible political, making really good political points, and they just drag him out. Yeah, it's amazing. I want someone to ask Trudeau questions about the whole thing with the First Nations and shit, right? Right. They've done a good. I tell you what, a fucking good job of making sure that that wasn't too prominent in so in the global yeah fucking Summit. sphere, was it? Because I mean, I fucking didn't know about this till only maybe like a year or so ago, like quite how bad it was. I but. I watched an horrifyingly sad documentary about it many years ago, and it, I, there's like a name. It's like the Great Hole. I can't remember what it's called. But yeah, it, it, the North America, America and Canada, horrific, the things they did to the First Nations, yeah. utterly horrific. Yeah. Yeah, like there are people who are our generation who don't know who that, their like parents are. That's fucked. It's just ridiculous. It's so, so very racist. Yeah. yeah. But um, back to good old, uh, from one depressing topic yeah. to another, back to fucking 
Bobby Leaflin. It, do you know what? It's um, <laughs> Leaveling. How do you pronounce it? Liebling. Liebling. Yeah. Do you know what's fucking, there was that joke you made about the, the Fantasia. Fantasia. Yeah, they yeah. got me th- thinking of Leafling. Liebling. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, what a fucking, what a harrowing documentary. I'm so sorry that I recommended it to you. I felt really guilty, like, because I haven't watched it in over 10 years, basically, yeah. as usual. Um, and, yeah, I actually originally recommended a different documentary to you. I recommended yeah. Until the Light Takes Us. I watched an hour of it, and I was like, I don't remember everyone being this racist. Yeah. And I was like, well, we, we may as well not review this because it's just not going to be entertaining for anybody. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was like, oh, how about this one about Pentagram? Because <laughs> I remember it being a good documentary, and it, it is good because yeah. it does say something and i think really good television and film isn't always about the subject it's about what you learn from them there's something like there's something bigger than bobby liebling you take away from the documentary Uh, yeah what i take away from it is that there is hope for people in similar situations because you know like because you saw that he had a limited measure of success and kind of rehab himself and perform on stage again. He looked great at the end of it. Yeah, he and you know, does, and, and yeah. that shows that it is possible. Yeah. Like, obviously, unfortunately, he succumbed to whatever demons and done some heinous shit afterwards. But, um, you know, I think it is a good lesson that, you know, with the right support and then the right sort of social circles, you can come back from these sort of things. And, you know, like, fucking shout out to the main dude with the pellet, his name was, I think. Pelletier. But, yeah, but... Yeah. The pellet. The pellet. <laughs> but he fucking... Um, I mean, that dude was so committed. Imagine if someone was, like, there to support you as much as that guy supported Bobby Liebling. Like, he drove... He, he like, lost a day of work to drive to, to the prison where Liebling is to, like, wait for him to come out because he's worried that Liebling's going to be on his own. Yeah. And then, like, he has to miss the next day of work... And he's like losing money that he's putting into the band of Pentagram yeah. to release their stuff and negotiating a contract with Phil and Selmo. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just really, God damn, he just loves Pentagram so much. Which just shows that, you know, that's the connection music can have with fans, right? Who knows? Yeah. It almost, well, I mean, well, he's still alive, but like, you know, it almost saved his life, right? He In definitely saved his life multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it just shows that, you know, you can never underestimate the connection music can have with a fan and how, you know, we're talking about the whole thing before, about the whole six degrees of separation and, mm. and you know, how... And we were talking about this a little bit in the in the Grave Lines episode way back about you know when you when you complete your art it's submitted to the like this the ionosphere for everyone else to kind of interpret it in their own way and you know and that's obviously happened with Pentagram's music right because yeah. how many you saw from the testimonials from some of the fans in the documentary about how much the music meant to them and it seemed like when he moved back to his mum's sub basement that, <laughs> that was when. Like a lot of people rallied and supported him, like local musicians and stuff. And it just shows that how that help can be reciprocated from something that you created that has now taken on kind of a, a life of its own. Yeah, I was I was going to say, like, originally, I agree. Like, the documentary makers, when they first saw him, they were like, oh, he's just a junkie. Like, there's no hope for this man. He's just going to die soon. Because he literally does say, I'm going to die, like, yeah. real soon. And he looks like he will. It's terrifying to to watch him in that state. It's, like, honestly one of the scariest things I would not I've have seen thought, about drugs. I would not, for in a million years, would have thought that that man would have ever went back on stage. Same. But, I just thought we, I was... Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I thought the documentary was going to be... I mean, I, I knew because I Googled that you were still alive beforehand. Yeah. But, like, I had no idea that, that it was somewhat going to have a bit of a redemption arc. It's called Last Days Here. Yeah. So you think it's going to be just 
super, super grim. Yeah. Um, yeah, the documentary makers, they, they turned up, did that interview, and they were like, there's no way this documentary is going to go anywhere. He's just going to die, and we don't want to just do a documentary about a guy who just smokes crack and heroin all day. Yeah. So they, they weren't going to do it, and then they heard he was kidding himself up, and that's when they came back. And they were like, okay, we, we could have a story here, so we're going to just film yeah. what happens. And by God, do they have a story. Like, there's a really... Yeah. The, the whole overarching narrative is, you know, he's on crack. He meets this very young girl, cleans up. They break up. They go to pr- he goes to prison. And then, like, he kind of gets himself together and does a, sh- a show, which is almost doesn't happen. And it's so stressful because you learn about all the other times that the shows didn't happen with him because yeah. he's self-sabotaging. And, and they used footage of it as well, right? So you oh, actually saw footage so of these, great. like, car crash shows. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So basically there's, there's one of the black cat where I think he overdoses um, and he's just, he can't play. like, And it's the first time, I think it was like a really big show. It's sold out. Everyone's there, people going crazy. And he just doesn't turn up and the whole band are there. Um, and it's like legendarily bad. Um, and yeah, I think, I can't remember, he, he passes out. He's just like ODing on, on his yeah. mate. He, he passes out. Um, they somehow get him to kind of fucking wake up and he's somewhat he together. He stumbles on stage, tries to take the mic, then stumbles back onto the drum riser, and then that's the end of it. That's the show. He's yeah. like, I can't do it. And then the, there's a show after that, same deal, and he doesn't turn up until the end of the last song. Like, the band delay it. They delay it. They're, like, waiting for him. The whole audience is going crazy. The promoter's like, you need to do something or they're going to tear my venue up. Yeah. So they just... The, what they, the guitarist is like, okay, this is going to be a pentagram karaoke set because our singer's too good for the band. And they start playing all the songs and they just give the microphone to the audience. And then, literally, he says, like, the last two measures of the last song, Bobby Liebling appears on stage and he kicks the Bobby Liebling in the shin. And the guitarist leaves the stage because he's got a cordless guitar and plays behind the stack so that Liebling can't come and rock out with him. And you can oh see you can see Liebling's like, what's the problem here? <laughs> <laughs> it's so... I, I just cannot... And yeah, the guitarist left the band at that point. He was like, I'm not doing this again. You can never... I'm never going to go through that again. So I don't remember ever hearing about this shit. I just don't know why this wasn't big... Maybe it was big news. Maybe it was just me not paying attention because... But, like, fuck. I just don't remember... I remember hearing about Pentagram, but I had no idea it was... There was so much fucking... Nah, mental. The thing that really hurt me, like, hurt my soul about the, like, self-sabotaging elements of Liebling was um, Columbia Records paid for them to do a demo in New York City with, like, a very well-known producer. So the band, like, go up to New York um, and they're in the studio and everything's going really well. This like, very successful producers, like, helping them to get signed to Columbia Records, who's, like, would have been life-changing for the whole band in the 70s as well, like, the heyday of big bucks if you get signed to a label like that. Um, and, yeah, they, they do the drums, they do the guitars, and then it's time for the vocals. And Bobby Liebling lays down a single vocal line, a single track, and the producer's like, hey, you know, come and listen to the track. Liebling listens to it. He doesn't like it. And he's like, I want to I wanna change the I wanna change the track. I don't like the take I did. Um, I want to I change it. And the producer's like, don't worry, we'll fix it in post. Um, and Liebling's like, no, I want to do the track again. And the producer's like, no, like, the, we need to do the other thing now. We're in the studio, we need to do this and that. And basically they have an argument. Liebling does not understand that when you are recording music in a studio, it doesn't sound very good at first, necessarily. Like, it doesn't sound the way you think it's going to sound on the record. And Liebling, like, refused to understand it and then literally walked out. 
And that was it. Lost the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> he, lost, he lost the record deal because he didn't understand mixing. Yeah. No. Uh. <laughs> yeah, Liebling lost a record deal of Columbia Records in the heyday, the golden age of music, because he did not understand the concept of fixing something in Then one of the other guys was just like, you know, I was actually thinking about killing him. I wanted to kill him. I would too. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> if I was in a band with someone and they pulled that shit, I would uh, go ballistic. Uh, That's absurd. Like, wow. I mean, Columbia Records, New York City, this producer, oh my fucking... And like they're saying that in the interviews, the, the band members are like, I often think of that day. And I, I imagine if he hadn't walked out and we just finished the demo yeah. and walked away having done it without pissing off the producer, how what my life would be like. That's crazy because like, that's like one of two major moments like that because there's the one yeah. where Gene Simmons is in watching them and it was a make-or-break performance and two of them, and that wasn't even Liebling's fault because two of them just couldn't be bothered to fucking... Yeah, turn up. I mean, just, just calling sick. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, I mean, Christ. <laughs> but like... um. But no, nah, yeah, that was wild. That that that, that story when it got um, flown out or, or put on the train to New York, because yeah. um, it was just fucking. But hey, this just goes to show it's the Peter Pan syndrome. You could tell that he was so immature, and you could tell he just never grew up. He was scared. He was scared yeah. of the success, and I've yeah. seen it in people on a much smaller scale. But I've seen it. Yeah. Like sometimes the notion of playing a big show or of getting a certain measure of success is terrifying. Even yeah. if it's a very small amount of success, it's like a lot of pressure. Yeah. So I, to an extent, I understand. But Jesus fucking Christ, Bobby Liebling, like why did you do that? Because yeah. he's fucking over everyone else. It's so selfish. Yeah. But it's um, definitely as documentaries go, it was one of the more kind of... I really enjoyed it, though. I thought it was a great... It was as tough as it was a watch. I do think it was... It's quite an important documentary because, like what I said at the very beginning, I think it's just so important to show that flip side to such a hedonistic hedonistic lifestyle. It It is a fascinating insight into the dark side of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. Um... I will say that the burn that Kiss gave Paul Stanley and um, what's his face, uh, Gene Simmons gave to Pentagram. One of the things was like, um, you, you're called Pentagram, but it's only four members of the band. Yeah. And I think, yeah, another one was like, oh, the drummer's too fat. And then I think, I can't remember, I need to go back and check, but I'm pretty sure it said, oh, and two of you are brown, which was like, what? Whoa. Like, why did Kiss say that? That's pretty fucked up. But Is I need to go and said? double check I, it. I, I think I'll make the remarks to two else. of them wearing the, the janitor scrubs. I hope that's what it was. I think that's what it was. I can't remember the exact quote, but I think that's maybe what you're saying. Maybe two I of them missed look, the end. There's like two of them looked really fast. grubby or, or, like, or like covered in brown shit or something. I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. But, but I think it was a reference to two of them looking like they've just been scrubbing shit all Let's day. Let's imagine that because Kiss have, oh, I don't want to imagine it, but Kiss have not done anything else that I know of that's like that I mean Gene Simmons is just all around just a bit of a he's a beamer though yeah. yeah just I mean he's not got a great reputation of being a very personable human being I do but. know that an interviewer was interviewing him and tried to pronounce his um, his real name which is like a Jewish name and Gene Simmons was like don't worry you've got a Gentile mouth you can't <laughs> pronounce it which I think is a pretty funny response to <laughs> like he's Jewish obviously yeah yeah but it's um, no yeah I've never been I like a few Kiss songs but I've never been a big fan 
I saw them live and they were amazing. I'd never really listened to them until oh, really? then. Was that at Hellfest or? No, surprisingly. It was at the O2 Arena. Someone got me a free ticket. Oh, shit. No way. Yeah, it was a fucking cool. incredible. Like, their stage show is fantastic. I did yeah. see them at Hellfest go up on stage yeah. many years before. I was, like, behind in the artist area um, because I'm so fucking cool. Um, but I was in the artist area and, like, they were everyone, literally everyone at Hellfest, every artist went out to the there's like a building where all the artists get ready all their dressing rooms and they they came out of the building to walk up on the main stage because it's right be, be, right but behind the main stage so it's really easy for the big guys to just go on and they like walk out and they're huge boots and they're like silvery full costumes and everyone's like oh, it's kiss like the like literally every band at hellfest was like oh my god it's kiss like black metal bands, death metal bands, doom metal bands, they're all there. They're all like yeah. in awe of, of these people. And they like, they come out and they, they start climbing the like small narrow metal steps up onto the main stage. And they're like, boots are really heavy. And they're like, obviously kind of tired and, and old looking. And they're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of like slightly bent. And they're like, they're going up these stairs and you can tell they're fucking knackered and that their boots are too heavy. And there was like a moment of like frailty. But at the same time, they were just being like revered and worshipped yeah. by every artist. There. It was it was a really strange moment. There's like a quiet hush descended on this like babble of drunken revelry, and everyone's like, "Good lord, it's Kiss." Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, like, I've watched so many interviews with spe specifically um, artists from the US. So obviously, they were the shit in the states, right? Yeah. So anybody growing up, uh, uh, I had the formative years in the seventies round about the time Kiss were big, would have fucking loved Kiss mm. in a similar way that people in the UK love acts like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones yeah, the generation guess. before. But, like, people fucking adore Kiss. And I get it, because, I mean, that, that must have been pretty wild at the time. I mean, they basically, well, I don't, wouldn't say invented corpse paint, but definitely <laughs> popularised it, right? It. Yeah. I mean, Arthur Brown, I think, was one of the first instances yes. of someone wearing, like, face paint on stage in a way that was meant to evoke fear but um it was very cool as well oh yeah, yeah setting himself on fire as well jesus christ yeah that's way more metal than anything else i've seen but i mean i mean kiss just kind of had the whole aesthetic appeal to them you totally would just have been like if i was a kid growing up in that year i would have been like i liked them i didn't give a fuck they look cool yeah they look like cool toys they literally look like toys yeah and much in the same way that, you know, anybody that grew up watching wrestling in the 90s, like a lot of people's favorite wrestler was Kane because Kane looked so fucking cool. Oh, look at that big jacked seven foot tall guy <laughs> with a fucking mask and he's got his face is all burnt. Like, that's, that's pretty rad. It's like pre-Slipknot, um, like, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, would it be pre-Slipknot? I think, is it, I think pre it probably would have been. When did he they debuted fall? in 97. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so Kane, yeah, so Slipknot's first, well, I think they first started wearing masks by 99, right? Yeah. But. Nice. And I'm not a Slipknot historian. Ne so. Me neither. I'm. I'm not. But um, respect to Slipknot and and uh, my condolences to the family and fans. Um, so, documentary time. I don't want to go off on a tangent. It's oh, there's just there's so much in the documentary. They really did squeeze in a lot. That it is kind of horrifying how he he gets spoiler alert. He gets back together with the girl that he yeah. goes to prison for. Well, not for because of, that makes it sound like it's her fault. He goes to prison because he was a dick. Um, they they get back together, and when they do, she just has this like dead look in her eyes. Did you notice that? She looks harrowed. Yeah, it's and I think you know the biggest shock is at the end when you find out that he's gonna become a father at 
what, 50-odd years old oh, with, God, this, that poor child. with this woman who previously filed a restraining order against him. And yeah. it's just like, it's, I mean, that has all the hallmarks of an unhealthy relationship, right? Can you imagine being the kid and you watch that documentary about your family? Oh, my God. And, um, and I don't know what he's doing now. Apparently he's out of prison now. He served his time for fucking attacking his mum, so... Bloody hell. So fuck knows. Apparently he's still kicking about. 60, he's 67 now, I think. Wow. Or maybe 50, no. Was Lemmy, what, he, was he like 70? Pretty much 70 on the dot. Oh, 70? Yeah, I think it was just after Oof. or just before his 70th birthday. It was wow. December 2015, I think Lemmy died. Damn. But yeah, so, Fuck. Fuck, yeah, fuck, basically. <laughs> this whole documentary will just have you saying the word fuck over and over again. Well, the thing is, I can't deny, it has made me want to check out Pentagram. They are, musically, I do like their music. I hate their lyrics. Like, the best song, Forever My Queen, is, like, a little bit rapey, but it's so catchy. And I don't want to be that but the riffs person. I, when I first heard that song, it's so dark, Yeah. it's so heavy, and you're like, what, this is from the 70s? It's yeah. like very, very dark, Led Zeppelin. Not even Led Zeppelin, it's just dark um, and yeah. heavy. Very similar to Coven in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, it's very hooky, but I can't listen to them anymore. Yeah, I just can't listen to them. It's worth checking them out just to know what they sound like. And they still get booked for festivals, but I wouldn't. That's crazy. I, I'm yeah. Not, yeah. See, that was just more the thing for me, was the curiosity thing, just mm. to see what the appeal is, because they've obviously got such a cult appeal. So I was just like, oh, I might try and... Because, I mean, it's a name I used to see bandied about a bot. Uh, a bot about <laughs> and but just never really paid them much heed because i got into the whole sort of stoner doom thing much later than i think a lot of fans of that genre like that's because i've more I've mentioned this loads of times before but definitely started with the more kind of death metal black metal subgenres, and then worked my way back into some of the other ones just to see if there was something i was missing you know and then um, found out there was a lot i was missing um <laughs> So, yeah, I think so. during my formative years exploring sort of extreme music, I just just kind of doom, especially traditional doom, was always on the back burner because they are seen as, like, one of the forefathers, right? Like, them. They're one of the big four of doom, Candlemass. Yeah. Candlemass, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I actually write it down somewhere just because I didn't want to be an idiot. Um, <laughs> I, they're like the proto-fathers, really. No, no, it's can... Candlemass, St. Vitus and Trouble. Sabbath is, like, a given. Yeah, Trouble, really good. They're actually, like, Christian as well, but they're really good live. Yeah. They're one of the loudest oh, bands. Yeah, they're one of the loudest bands I've ever heard, including Man of War and Motorhead. Trouble agree. Damn. They were so... <laughs> Trouble was so loud. I saw them at Desert Fest, and I, I, you had to climb... It was at the Coco, so I had to climb into the photo pit to take pictures. You couldn't... There wasn't a door. You had to, like, be lifted up and put in. And there were so many people, and it was so loud that I think, like... I think the camera lens was, like, rattling. Whoa. Like, it... My hands were just shaking. Like every time there was like a bit of bass, it was like boom, boom, boom. It was horrifyingly loud. But they're really good live. They're a fantastic yeah. band. Nice. I'll check them out. Yeah, I've never really listened to Trouble, but I'll give them a, yeah, good. Give yeah. them a shot. Yeah, they're catchy as hell. I like them. And um, I'm not like, I like, I'm not huge on St. Vitus. I do like St. Vitus, but I prefer Spirit Caravan. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever checked them out. It's like no, a wino side project. Yeah. Yeah. He Winers also had quite a troubled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that guy right? loves his meth. Yeah. Yeah. He's. And what is it? Was Chino his wife of like years and years? Oh, was he? I'm not surprised. I think you told me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not you You're not supposed to find out these things from me. Yeah. You oh no! Wait, I saw it on Instagram. It wasn't something someone told me. Okay. Yeah. yeah no. That's different. Yeah. Um. 
yeah, so he, he, I, there is a, there is like, um, in Such Hawks, Such Hounds, I think, I can't remember who said it, but the first time another musician met Wino, I think it might have been Scott Kelly, actually, um, Wino offered for him to do a line of speed off a machete in a car park. Oh. It's so cringe. It is. It's, it's so like cringe. if you're a teenager, you're like, wow, drugs and swords. But it's like, why is Wino walking around car parks with a machete and speed? Like, Fucking what are you hell. doing, mate? Come on, man. I mean, after watching, like, this, this documentary will make you just never want to do drugs. Seriously. It's fucking horrendous. Like, it's not that cool. Drugs is for oh. mugs. Drugs is for mugs. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I've never really... I, I think at the each person should have fucking... I've, I've never looked down on anybody that's taken drugs. A lot of my closest friends are, like, yeah. you know, responsible about it, to be yeah. fair. And yeah. it's never bothered me personally, especially if it's used recreationally or you know, just yeah. at fucking festivals, gigs, or whatever. Like it's, it's addiction. Never... That's the thing. I think maybe yeah. we sh- that, that's what I should have said is addiction, fucking, that's the problem. Yeah, I th- that's because that's where the line is drawn, I think, for a lot of people when it starts to affect their relationship with others and yeah. where it starts to completely consume their life and, and other people who are friends with people who are addicts are then taken advantage of and used yeah. by these people and a lot of a lot of theft a lot of time this you know amount of times shit gets stolen just to, to to fund these habits i mean that's just the most common um fucking thing that i think is the final nail in the coffin for a lot of people but it's just like because if you can't trust them around you know i mean the 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 it gets to the point where a lot of them will just sell heirlooms just to get a, a, a cheap hit and it's like, fuck, I mean, how far gone do you have to be to get to that stage? And, you know, I do have sympathy to an extent for these people, but I think, you know, I think not everybody, I think this is mentioned in the documentary at one point, I think said by <laughs> Phil Anselmo and Jimmy Bauer, <laughs> you know, like it's never too far gone for, for people. And I think he is, and I think that's kind of what they were hoping to get out of this documentary. I think they wanted to <laughs> yeah. put across that it wasn't, that, you know, that that's the, the overarching message that anyone could come back from a horrific sort of situation. But, um, but no, I, I do, I do believe, it. I think people can, and people have come back from miraculous situations where they've been addicted to a lot of substances. But I think it's, I think to get over that, you need to accept your addiction. And I think that's like that's what I was saying before, that's where a lot of them stumble because a lot of them don't have the acceptance that that's the position they're in. And that's what keeps them in that cycle. I always go on about him like every every few episodes, but there's a there's a guy called Gabor Mate, and his specialization is addiction, and he's a Canadian uh, researcher who works with heroin addicts specifically, yeah, um, and just addicts in general because Canada has a horrifying fentanyl problem, yeah, um, because you know they they flooded the pharmaceutical market with this drug, and doctors prescribed it, and people got incredibly addicted to this insanely addictive drug, and yeah. it's just ruined a lot of fucking people's lives, and it's specifically in Vancouver, it's like one of the worst, it's a drug capital of Canada, a lot of drugs go through there so Gabo Mate works with a lot of addicts in Vancouver um, and he has some fascinating work on the nature of addiction that like once you once you hear him you can hear him talk about on YouTube I thoroughly recommend it to anyone it's not just about drugs it's just addiction in general because he's like I'm a shopping addict but he talks about the how addiction stems from trauma and how um how a lot of our trauma is inherited yeah. Um, and how a lot of the ways that we deal with it result in addiction because we're trying to like stifle that pain. And it's interesting because there's a point in the documentary 
where um, they're talking to Liebling's parents and the mum is like, she thinks a lot of his pain comes from his relationship with his father, which is very common, I think. Yeah. Um, and basically the father's like, yeah, you know, yeah, basically, because the father was working at the Ministry of Defense in America, at the Pentagon. Um, and apparently, you know, there was a lot of pressure on Liebling to kind of live up to his father and a lot of ri rivalry. And when he was a teenager, every day when Liebling came home, his dad would be like, have you cut your hair yet? That'd yeah. be the first thing that he said. So it sounds like that's where stuff got wrong. And I think perhaps he developed a complex to do a failure and success yeah. and fear. Yeah, I think, you know, it, not to put put the onus too much on people's parents but that often seems to be the case right is a fucked up relationship with the parents yeah yeah this but is this, all too common at the same time not to downplay it i mean i know plenty of people and myself we've gone through fucking horrific shit with family and trauma and things like that um but it part of healing is understanding that and trying to get to the root of the addiction because yeah. i definitely have an addictive personality like i have been addicted to things thankfully not drugs yeah. but i've felt myself becoming addicted to them and i'm fucking terrified of them yeah. because it's scary like you know you 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 can literally end up like that guy yeah you know like scrabbling for crack crystals in like some basement and yeah. your family is like you know mourning you while you're still alive it's horrific yeah. it's horrific um and yeah, like I would recommend anyone who's curious about that to go and, and look at the work of Gabor Mate. And it's a lot of it is about family trauma and like how, for example, he's a Holocaust. Um, his parents were in the Holocaust. Yeah. He was born in Hungary at the very end. And apparently all the Jewish babies in the city were crying. Um, yeah, in, like, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and like the doctor, like the, all the Jewish mums were called the doctor and the doctor was like, all the Jewish babies are crying. They know something's wrong because they could feel it with their parents. And even when you're a toddler... If you're or a baby, if your parents are stressed, you you receive that stress and you internalize it and you are traumatized by it. And there's no fault of the parent because yeah. you can't control that. Even if you're like scared, you're scared for your life and there's fucking Gestapo about, of course, you're going to be stressed. Um, and this is intergenerational trauma, specifically for people who've gone through the Holocaust. It's like a well-documented thing and it's, it exists everywhere in all families. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just I'm definitely going to give it because I know you mentioned it before, so I'm definitely going to give it a, a read, listen, watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's uh, fuck, it's um, definitely one of the tougher documentaries to. Uh, <laughs> it's not light-hearted. Uh, to, to go through, <laughs> but it was. Um, but no, like I said, you know, I think it, it does provide such a, an interesting snapshot into a lifestyle that I think a lot of people kind of revere and inspire to have. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, for some people, I'm not saying everybody's naive enough to think that it's all fun and games and that lifestyle. Like, I think a lot of people are aware, but I think when you see it so um, brutally on display with, like, the aforementioned scene with him showing his arms, mm. like, you know, that is, like, that is a very visual reminder of just how bad it could be, right? Yeah, and I think you know that is that scene. I imagine is would be the scene that would shock mo most people. It is, it is body horror. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it's very shocking and it's very real. And it's I've not ever seen addiction presented in that way on on a film, TV kind of context. I'm living in London. I'm sure all of us have seen like some shit because there's a lot of addicts here. Um, I literally. Like a year or two ago, I was coming home um, in the afternoon on like a Wednesday and there was a guy who overdosed on heroin on the train, like right in front Damn. of me. It was, and people thought he died. 
Yeah, that's fucked. Because his body had just gone cold and people were trying to revive him. And then when he came to, the paramedic was like, are you on drugs? Because he had obviously like track marks on his arm. And he was like yelling at the the addict. He was like, why are you fucking doing this? And he was like, I understood the frustration of the paramedic, but at the same time, and I I understand like fucking hell, there's like kids on this train. Don't don't do heroin on trains with kids around and and in the middle of the day. That's fucked. Um, But yeah, there was like no understanding at the same time between the two people. And then the heroin guy did try and like spark the paramedic out, but he was so sick that he just fell down. Yeah. And it was really horrible to watch. Yeah. Fuck. Just on the tube of all places. It was an overground train. Was it? Christ. <laughs> Even more like middle class. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. I've seen some wild stuff on the underground though. There's been some crazy shit. Oh yeah. Night buses as well. That is the... I hate night buses. That's a lawless wasteland there. It's fucking terrifying, especially when yeah. you're on your own. It's not something that you want to experience in London. I remember once I got a night bus. It was in the N136. And it was... Um, and there was, these, there was this couple on the lower deck and just legit just sucking each other's fingers. Which wasn't... It was, isn't too, like, you know... That's so weird. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, obviously it's pretty vanilla as far as things go, but like it's just weird to see it out. That's so it, like, oh. Yeah. Because yeah. what it was is they were eating chicken, so they were like eating the, <laughs> of course, it's South London, so I think, and it was just, it was just, they were just so fucking into licking the grease off each other's fingers, and it was just. For some reason, I'd rather yeah, see just, people snogging than to see that. That's, that's so that's, like intimate. Yeah, I just thought it was just weird, and I was just like, God, oh. that's just. Kind of, um, yeah, oh. it makes me cringe a bit, but... Yeah, I feel... Yeah, it stuck I feel with me. That 20-odd years ago as well, and oh I still remember it. Yeah. Damn, that is crazy. I, I do know that... Um, tangent, I'm going to talk about myself again. Oh, Shem's laughing. What's no, up? Sorry, sorry. You just saw a funny meme, didn't you? No, 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 I just thought of something along the lines of these stories. Oh, OK, I think I know what you're thinking about. Um, yeah, in, in Iran, in, like, the 80s, they basically flooded the country with heroin on purpose to stop another revolution from happening. It was like intentionally done to kind of um, dull a lot of young people. So there was a huge problem with heroin in Iran. God damn. Um, Like to the extent that, you know, my mum has multiple stories about people like, you know, perfect. It was usually men that they would target. Um, A lot of partners who, like there was a a good friend of hers and um, they had a kid that a young child every time, like the the guy was too fucked to go to work, so the woman had to work. Every time she came home, something else was missing because he'd sold it. And then one day she came home and there was nothing, nothing at all. No furniture, no TV, no pots yeah. and pans or plates. Everything was gone. He yeah. just sold it all for drugs. Yeah. Um. But Iran also does have the best heroin recovery in the world. Oh. Because it's the only. They were the first country. I don't know if it's still the only, but because I I think they started to adopt it in the West. Um. They're the only. They were the first country to basically find a way of treating addiction by giving people small amounts of heroin. Yeah. So instead of just being like cold turkey, fuck you, they were like, okay, we're just going to make the dose smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you can fucking function again. Yeah, so kind of like weaning them off as opposed to... Because I know here, I think most people still get methadone, right? They just replace the heroin with methadone and then you get put in a methadone script and then um, then they get addicted to methadone. Oh wow! Great. Yeah, yeah so, it's just a drug that you pay for this time. Which is, um, which I think I is, 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 is obviously it's cleaner than heroin, which I think is their rationale because obviously you don't need to inject it or or like but, have it transported through like child slave labor through like you know yeah. war torn countries and shit. So, yeah. but I mean, we, we, I mean, obviously there's 
we, we know that they're the fucking there's elements of drug rehab in the West that is just massively fucked up and just not it's corrupt just doesn't work you know and like yeah. you said it's corrupt because it's you know at the end of the day it's all about money and that's all it's ever been about right you know it's that's why the drugs are here in the first place <laughs> <laughs> fucking end stage end of last days here capitalism yeah. that's that's what you get it's fucked um, and you know we need to I think we need to change our attitude towards addiction in society yeah definitely because I think you know it's often and like what you said you see obviously not every homeless person is a drug addict but there's a large percentage of people you see on the streets and they're often in that position because of an addiction whether it be um, alcohol or, or harder drugs and I think you know therein lies the problem as well drinking alcohol is so normalized in this country and it's so it's so kind of commonplace to just get absolutely like plastered whereas well really is there really much difference between that and taking a few lines or I think they're all just or, terrible for you right because alcohol is like a huge killer it's one of the biggest killers but it's packaged in a nice commercial kind of it's part of the culture yeah so and, and like, don't get me wrong it's probably safer than, in, than you know sharing needles and oh, you know, risking. Yeah. of yeah. course like i'm not, not suggesting that it, that it isn't but at the same time i think you know so many people who like to get pissed for the weekend will look so will look down so much on people on the streets that are addicted by drugs and i think the, the line is much smaller than they think it is between their lifestyles i mean yeah and, and the thing is we treat we treat addiction first off like a huge taboo. Yeah. Um, any form of addiction, really, because like people are terrified of mental illness, and I understand why because you don't want to be mentally ill yourself, and God forbid, like, you know, you're around that and you feel the same things. However, to treat addiction, you've got to treat the root of addiction, which is trauma. Yeah. And everyone's traumatized, and we all need to work on our trauma, and we all need help with it, and that's like essentially the only thing you can do. And you know, all these drugs and shit. I think I I have very mixed feelings about it. I don't I don't think we should ban alcohol. Um, no. Even though I, I'd probably have a much better time in no. society if we did, but I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think everyone should have the right to. Well, someone just did opera singing. That was great. <laughs> that was fantastic. Very good voice. Um, ten out of ten. We should review them on Serpent <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a really fucked subject, but. I think we, I mean, like, weed should 100% be legal. 100%. Uh, yeah, I mean, neither of us smoke or care about it, but it should be legal. I mean, it's got so many medicinal properties, right? And um, what I've heard from a few sources is the reason why it's illegal in the first place is because it's such a rival to the, to the uh, tobacco industry. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like, hemp paper is so much more economically friendly than... Then you know a lot of other fucking and environmentally. You know, yeah, exactly. Then yeah. so it's a massive. So hemp is a massive rival to a As lot a of crop. paper industries and you know, all the fucking people that cut down shit tons of trees. Um, and you know this, it's it, there's so many industries it would it would be and competition disrupt. for. Yeah. That I think that's why I've heard that it's they've been so fervent in making sure that it is still criminalized. I've heard the same thing. Uh, again, like I'm not a scientist in this area. I don't know how true it is, but it feels intuitively correct yeah. to me. Um, I will stand corrected if I'm wrong. I'm happy to hear evidence otherwise, but it does seem 
that does seem to be the case. And like the more I learn about the way that like, for example, the meat industry, the dairy industry, the fishing industry works, the more I have like so much distrust to the, like the majority of farming is heavily subsidized by the government to the extent that the fishing industry doesn't actually even make any money. Yeah. It's just there because like of probably, you know, lobbying or some fucking shit like that. Yeah. And I, I think that's just detestable because it's, so destructive like what's the point just go and fucking imagine if we spent that money first off apparently you can cure world hunger with the amount of money that's spent on fishing subsidies which is yeah. ridiculous but you could just put that money into like a, an industry that's going to create jobs yeah like those people could go and, and grow hemp and be happy and like yeah. be easy listen to some fucking chill music and smoke weed all day and yeah. like you know show people how <laughs> smoke weed every day <laughs> <laughs> smoke weed every day <laughs> It's so funny because we're like the least weed people around. Like weed know. makes me feel genuinely psychotic. I will not smoke weed. Yeah, I just yeah. As always, if it's not already known, I'm completely 100. Um, percent I've never taken anything ever. So so it's. I uh, love that. I've got so no. I've, I've got no reference point. You must for be anything protected. experienced by poor Bobby Lieblin in this documentary. <laughs> and, and so I am a fucking noob when it comes to any. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I've seen um, I've been numerous people in my life who have yeah. had addiction problems and or even s smaller substance problems, and you know you, you can see it, you can see the impact it has on on them and their social circles and the people around them. And and I think you know you kind of touched a very valid point, and I think a lot of it is to do with trauma and people's mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know there's this still this big stigma that because um, like you know when you've there's such especially when it comes to how things are treated in hospitals, like mental health and physical health are treated as completely disconnected. Yeah, there's no understanding of like, oh, they, we just treat the symptoms for mental health. You don't treat the root cause. Exactly. And it's almost like, you know, everyone will, no one will ever shy away from saying that they've had physical health problems at certain points. Mm -hmm. But everybody will shy away from saying that they've had mental health issues at some point. And I think, you know, there's two sides of the coin. You get some people who are very, who I think are, are so entrenched in this idea that they've got this diagnosis and they can't break out of it. But on the flip side, I think you've got a lot of people who are so adamant that they have zero mental health issues. But that's as preposterous as saying that you've never had any physical health problems. Exactly. It's just like, you know, of course people experience mental health issues. That's why people feel sad at times like that is it's it's natural it's healthy to feel sad yeah. yes you need to and i'm not saying that trauma is necessary not at all i mean i have had mental health problems from a very young age i've had additions like i have complex ptsd yeah um and i have untreatable depression yeah. um and it's like it's shit but i'm I know I have those things and instead of just taking like I totally understand if people take antidepressants absolutely take them if you need to take them yeah. but for me I know that it won't actually address the issue that I have like it's like my depression is is rooted in not just chemicals in my brain and the chemicals in my brain I can manipulate using exercise and diet and yeah. and understanding the way the brain works that in itself is enough for me to be able to manage it because yeah. that's what you do you manage it you, it's like having an injury you always you, you're not just like okay I'll never use my arm again you're like I will manage the pain I will ensure I do things that don't aggravate the parts yeah. of it physiotherapy and just yeah. yeah exactly rehab and fucking stretch and all that shit no totally right and I think um, but then again I think for a lot of people and I th actually think it, this is a real big thing with a lot of men in particular yeah. it's um, 
because therapy, I think, could just be massively beneficial to it's everyone. It's so important. And like, um, obviously, you've got loads of men who will, will will happily accept physical therapy for, say, a sports injury or an injury of some kind. But you know, when it comes to therapy for mental health issues, there's just that blockade for a lot of people. And I think it's, um, and obviously, it's not just men; it's a lot of people. But I think it's something that is quite prevalent in men. And I think, you know, and that is also something that can lead to addiction because that, hey, that's yeah. a way to numb it, right? It's Exactly. You know. it's, an, it's a way to manage it where you're not seen as weak, ironically, because you're seen to be by some a lot of people cooler for doing drugs than you are for having therapy, yeah. which is ironic because to a lot of women, that's far sexier. And I, I will I will speak for many women here. It is much more attractive if a man is having therapy than if he's got a drug addiction. Like that man is going to be a much better catch, a much better person to date, um, and you know it's the same for women as well. Yeah. Um, and you know I I have therapy and, and I it's not always fun. Yeah. Like it's it's not pleasant, but it's like exercising. It's like lifting weights. It's not always fun, but you know that the results at the end of it are going to be beneficial. And yeah. It's worth it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Have therapy, Bobby Leaving Pentagram. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's a documentary it's well worth a watch I would say yeah. it's uh, not one I'm going to watch again in a hurry that's for sure <laughs> but, um, but no it was uh, it was good and that's quite an interesting format I think and I was saying I really want to it'd be quite good to watch Slave to the Grind again it's a yeah mass, I've not watched that such a big grindcore fan I think it's a really unsung kind of genre subgenre awesome I think people I think when pe- a lot of people when they think of grindcore they think of gore grind and or just really shit kind of like porno grind or cyber grind mm. it's like so much more to it than that so much more like it's got so much roots in like fucking punk rock and fucking yeah. um, you know fucking hardcore punk and fucking there's just so much to it and it's politically charged in a good way that i think it's just yes. you know that's just fucking i've always loved it you know like groups like pig destroyer fucking worm rock great i love worm rock great grindcore band nasum and great band, and obviously Napalm Death as well. Um, even though the ironic thing about Napalm Death is they only had about a few grindcore albums, and they basically became a death metal band. But obviously, they're <laughs> pioneers of the genre. So yeah. Terrorizer, Extreme Noise, Terror, um, Jim yeah. Carrey, Jim Carrey, yeah. <laughs> With that fucking interview of him doing the uh, doing the impression of Napalm Death, yeah. it's classic. He's so good at it. Yeah, it's. A, do you remember when there was that trend? Um, that happened at one bloodstock when Cannibal Corpse were playing, when it, something went around on Facebook and everybody wanted to wear Hawaiian shirts. Oh my God, I remember that, yeah. Because obviously Jim Carrey and his cameo, uh, well, his cameo funny. was his film, Cannibal <laughs> Corpse's cameo in, um, pe- um, what do you call it? Ace Ventura. <laughs> yeah, was it Pet, Pet Detective? Detective? I haven't seen the film, I need to at some point. Ah, sorry. It's, it's just Jim Carrey doing typical Jim Carrey funny faces. And- He's gone crazy now, have you seen the interviews he gives? They're like existential dread interviews. He's like, we're all going to die. And like the red carpet. It seems like he's the sort of person that's always had those thoughts and kept them at bay by just acting like an absolute fucking lunatic in he has, I think he's depression or manic depression. Yeah. Um, he is a very fascinating character and a genius. He's a comedic genius and he's an artist as well. A very good artist. Yeah. He was quite good in the Sonic film as well. Going back to Sonic, <laughs> he played Dr. Robotnik and I thought it was surprisingly oh, good. Oh, that's so sweet. I love yeah. that you like Sonic. Yeah. yeah. All right, shall we call it a day? I think so. So thank you for bearing with us. Uh, let us know if you like this format. If there's anything else you want us to watch, we're going to check out some films and documentaries soon. We'd love some suggestions. Um, so yeah, cheers. Thanks for watching. Please like and subscribe. Au revoir. Until next time. <laughs>